Hello out there to everyone, and I want to thank you for joining me for episode 28 of the Mark Geis Show. This is Mark Geis, your host, and before I get into it today, I want to just make clear to everybody, let you know that we are out on the iTunes Store, uh, Blueberry, virtually any other podcast aggregator out there, and if you're not able to find us on a podcast aggregator, please let me know. I've tried to send this show in to just about every popular one out there that there is, but I'm sure there are some that I'm missing that I haven't found or some that maybe haven't gotten through the confirmation process. So I want to make the, make sure that this is accessible, not just through the website. Ideally, those of you that use podcast aggregating apps will be able to access it through there, get it sent automatically to your, to your phones or your, your mobile devices. So I appreciate you listening and I'm trying to make this as easy to get to you as possible. Uh, so this episode is going to be, a grab bag of a few different items that I want to talk about, a few different things that I want to talk about. So there's not going to be a unified theme. Sometimes these can be kind of fun though. Uh, but basically there are a few stories that came up over the past week. I think it's been five or six days since I last put out an episode. And I wanted to basically talk about how these stories as they came up throughout the week have related to what I've talked about previously. And of course, why I think they're relevant, why we should be talking about them, and why these could impact our lives. Uh, so I want to get into these. First, I want to discuss Trump's decision to name Betsy, DeVo- Betsy DeVos uh, the Secretary of, of the Department of Education. And you see all the hysteria coming out about how DeVos is anti-public schools, wants to gut the the public school system, that she is all about free markets and that she wants to privatize everything. Uh, That's basically what you're seeing. And I looked at the Mother Joneses of the world, those types of outlets, the way that they're framing this pick. Uh, And of course, I'm not against moving toward free markets or having, in fact, purely free markets in education. I think we would get far better outcomes than we're getting today at lesser costs if we were to move entirely in that direction of free markets. But this is such a distortion of what DeVos actually believes. You know, if if you look at what she said, she's not about free markets in education. She's about moving in that direction. She's pro uh, charter schools, pro uh, pro vouchers, a lot of those types of hybrid public private type measures to try to basically try to take away from the dominance of the public schools in the United States. She's for taking away federal control, moving more toward local control, things like that. Kind of standard Republican uh, right-wing type solutions. I'm putting that in, in quotes, uh, solutions to our, to our education issues. So basically take away the dominance of the public schools by putting some market forces into the equation. And I've talked about this before, no matter what I believe, you know, no matter what I believe is the ultimate solution and would be the best solution, what's most important is that we're moving in that direction. And I think that vouchers, charter schools, those types of things, uh, whether it's, you know, tax credits or education savings accounts or, or whatever the, you know, whatever the policy implementation is, if we're moving toward free markets and we're moving away from a one-size-fits-all government solution, I think that's a good thing. And I think that's what DeVos represents here. Now, do I think she's going to radically change 
the Department of Education? No. They'll probably end up spending just as much money as they have been. There probably will be just as much federal control over education as there has been uh, during the Obama administration and before. And I think it's, it's very hard to reverse that trend. Once you increase the federal government's control, you acknowledge that it has the power to exert control over education when it really shouldn't. Uh, you know, go back and look at the Constitution and, and let me know where in there it, it allows the federal government to have any control over public education in the states. And it doesn't. So this is kind of a, you know, this is a, a step in the right direction, which I welcome, but it's not radical. And that's kind of the scary thing about the left's reaction to this is, is talking like this is radical. But the way that they look at these things, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some quotes from a Mother Jones story. I'd mentioned Mother Jones before as a representation of the hysteria over the DeVos pick. So the headline to this article, and I'll have it posted in the, in the links section of the, of the page on the website, Trump's billionaire education secretary has been trying to gut public, ed, or public schools for years. Meet Betsy DeVos, the anti-union pro-voucher surprise nominee. So that's how it starts off. Then there's a bunch of garbage in this article about her husband and how he was part of the founding of Amway and was rich off of Amway and talking about how it's a pyramid scheme, which I don't disagree with on Amway, but I don't get how that's at all relevant to, to DeVos and to her role as secretary of the Department of Education. But then later on, talk about her hostility toward labor unions and talked about her uh, her advocacy and philanthropy philanthropy on controversial legislation known as right to work and for those of you that don't know what right to work legislation is basically it outlaws contracts that force all employees in workplaces that have that have unions to contribute to those unions so it allows you if you start working for an employer, you don't have to join the union and pay dues to that union. It's a, it's a choice for you, uh, which does not seem controversial to me whatsoever. You know, if we want people to be free to make their own choices, and if we want people to have more choices in terms of the, the employers that they want to join, uh, we should want right to work laws in place. Because if the choice is between joining this union that you don't agree with or not working for this employer at all, a lot of people are going to just completely eliminate a lot of employers from their list of potential ones to work for. But the people that oppose this basically see all unions as good. They can't see the destructive incentives oftentimes that unions create, you know, a lot of the bad policy that unions have been responsible for, and the, and the way that they operate in shady ways for self-preservation. They're not saying unions are unique in this way at all. All organizations, if they can do it, if they can exert political influence in order, in order to preserve themselves, the salaries that the people at the top are making in that organization, they're going to do it. So I'm not saying there's anything inherently about unions that make this happen. I think it's, it's human nature and it's self-preservation. But for some reason in this progressive mindset unions are good companies are bad and so anything that hurts unions is bad you know we're there's no nuance beyond that and that's what this article shows so i'm going to quote um, i'm going to quote a paragraph here 
Right-to-work laws, now on the books in 26 states, have been a major blow to the labor movement, including teachers' unions. Teachers in Michigan are no longer allowed to strike. When educators in Detroit protested earlier this year against growing class sizes, pay cuts, mold, roaches, and rodents in their classrooms, they had to use their sick days to make their point. A month after the strike, Betsy DeVos wrote an op-ed in the Detroit News arguing that teachers shouldn't be allowed to stage sick-outs either. Of course, I... I don't get what is wrong about that. I think when there's an employee-employer relationship, there is give and take on both ends. Basically, if you don't show up for your job, the employer should have the right to fire you. They're paying you a certain amount of money for you to come, for you to have a certain level of productivity. If you don't provide that productivity, the employer should be able to fire you, just like an employee is able to leave that employer whenever he or she wants. But for some reason, they think that employees should just have the right to strike with no repercussions. And the right to strike and to bilk local taxpayers out of money. Because that's who pays teachers' salaries, is local taxpayers. Well, and federal taxpayers and state taxpayers in a lot of, in a lot of cases. Because there is, there is state and federal money flowing into school districts. But it's taxpayers paying that money. And when teachers strike, that's really who they're bargaining against. That's who they're trying to get more money out of is taxpayers. That's one of the biggest problems I have with public sector unions. Why I think public sector unions are dangerous because there isn't that profit and loss incentive by the employer like there is with a private sector union. Now I'm I'm all about the right to assemble. I'm all about figuring out how to come together in order to best serve your interests. And the employee or the employer in the private sector can either choose, okay, I'm going to take the terms of this union or I'm not and I'm going to hire somebody else. As long as there's no government force behind those unions, I have no problem with coming together whereas where you as a single employee don't really hold any power except the ability to leave and to go to another employer. But if you come together with many other employees, now you can bargain for your interests and make your case in a more convincing manner. Uh, so I have no problem with with unions per se, but public sector unions I do have an issue with. And the most powerful public sector unions in the country, well, the most powerful unions, period, in the country are the teachers' unions. And just look at their campaign contributions to elections and how important their money is to presidential candidates, to congressional candidates, to candidates across the board. They they turn out a lot, too, for important local elections. They can really turn the tides in, in local elections because they can throw money around that other candidates without that kind of backing could only wish to have. Uh, so the teachers' unions have become incredibly powerful, and I just have a huge problem with this framing by outlets like Mother Jones and people that think this way, that all that teachers unions are trying to do is to make sure that, that nice teachers that are trying to help their, they're trying to help people's kids are paid fairly when it goes far beyond that. Really what the teachers unions have done is they've tried to impede any sort of research, any sort of new innovation that could take some money away from public school teachers being paid. And once again, that's of course the incentive that they have. 
The incentive that they have is to protect the interests of their members. The interest that they have is not, they don't care about the interests of the children. Or at least the, if they do care about the interests of the children, it's far, far secondary to the interests of the teachers. The teachers are what matter. Those are the members. That's what the union is trying to protect. So these whole articles, and I read, I read several of them. I don't want to bore people with reading the same kind of points over and over again. But this whole idea that if you are against the teachers' unions or you're critical of the teachers' unions, that you are against the students, that you're against the children being educated in these schools, it is so far removed from reality. And they make these... They make that equivalency without really even justifying it whatsoever. It's so ingrained now that if you're anti-teachers union, that means that you just want to gut education and you don't care about kids getting an education. That's the equivalency now. So beyond that, I'll go through the rest of the article here. Basically, the author talks about uh, gutting public schools. And that was what the what the headline was referring to, how she wants to gut public schools. And basically, the reason why she wants to promote the growth of charter schools, wants to promote competition for the entrenched public schools. And this is the evidence that the author gives to say that charter schools can potentially be bad uh, or can potentially be a, a huge negative for students. So Detroit... Detroit, she said, has the second biggest share of students in charters in America, uh, yet does not perform well. Without talking about, okay, how was Detroit performing prior to charters? You know, over time, as, as charter schools have gotten a larger market share, how has performance trended versus everywhere else? We know that Detroit has performed terribly over the long term. And probably no matter what you did there, performance is going to continue to be pretty bad. So she doesn't offer any sort of controlled experiment. I know in I know in reality pure controlled experiments are impossible, but you can talk about before and after and trends over time, but she's not talk about that whatsoever. And all that she does is take quotes from other biased sources that agree with her as quote unquote evidence for her position. Very similarly, she talks about vouchers and she only points to Louisiana's voucher program. Uh, basically, doesn't look at... She says there, there are a bunch of states, I believe 13 states that have... Yeah, say 13 states have active voucher programs. So it doesn't talk about the other 12 states that have voucher programs or the many cities across the country that have voucher programs but instead wants to look at performance in one state as representative of the impact of charter schools across the board. It's it's just very frustrating to read things like this, and people eat it up. If you hammer a point home long enough and you keep saying, those that are against teachers' unions or those that are critical of teachers' unions don't care about students' education, eventually a large section of the population believes it. If you keep saying... Charter schools don't work. Charter schools don't work. Charter schools don't work. Eventually, enough people are going to believe it. You're going to have a critical mass of people that believe this given idea, and it's going to become part of mainstream parlance. And that's what's happened with education. Now, do I believe charter schools are a panacea that's going to 
save this country. It's going to save the education system in this country. I don't think so. I do think it's a step in the right direction like I was talking about before. And I think all else being equal, more choice is good. And more choice is even more important for the worst off among us that have the worst existing choices to choose from, that have the worst public education systems. The large cities have the worst public education systems despite throwing typically the most money or among, you know, they're among the highest expenditures per pupil in the entire country, these large cities, yet continue to have terrible outcomes. And you can't keep pushing these sort of rhetorical agendas like this author is doing and like other authors of similar articles have been doing and people that are against charter schools and voucher schools or uh, against charter schools and vouchers. You can't keep pushing this without looking at these are the these are the horrible results of our existing system. A top-down approach has not worked, moving more and more control away from from the local school districts, moving it toward the states and then moving it to the federal government has not worked. It has not improved results. So we need to think differently. And if moving in that direction toward a more top-down approach has not worked, then what will work? Empowering the consumer and taking control back locally. And there's nothing more local than the individual. You know, even a local government is removed from the individual. I have more control over my, over my city government than I do over my state government or over the federal government. But it's still removed from me. It's still difficult for me to exert influence on that local government. But I control me and I control the choices that I can make with my money. And basically, that's the intention of vouchers. It's to put money in the hands of consumers and allow them to make choices. It is a move in a more market-based direction. And I think we owe it to people based on the horrendous results of our public education system over time and how private schools, Catholic schools, other, other religious schools have really been destroyed. You know, our, even my parents' generation, they were far more popular then than they are today. And they've been gutted by continuing to throw more and more money at public schools. And who has to pay for these increasing costs in public schools? It's the taxpayers. And if you're sending your children to a private school or to a public school, you are still paying the taxes to fund that public school. So the private school is a cost above and beyond what you pay in taxes. So to you, a public school costs nothing because you're going to be paying that either way. And a private school is additional cost above and beyond the cost of that public school. So the larger that these public school budgets get, the larger the tax burden is, and the more difficult it is to justify that additional expenditure to send your children to these private schools. Then as these private schools struggle, they've got to cut programs, if not close altogether, it eliminates even more competition for the public schools and takes away even more of that incentive to control costs because the children are going to be coming there either way. The less competition there is, the more likely that regardless of the product that you put out there, parents are still going to be sending their children there. So public education in this country is in a very precarious position. And I think the only way to improve it is to move to allow market forces to operate 
in education. And I've talked about this time and time again with a a whole host of different issues. A top-down approach to education, just like in any other industry, tends not to be the best way to do things. And empowering the individual tends to result in better outcomes, all things being equal. Now, does empowering the individual, does that result in perfect outcomes? Will it result in the U.S. rising to a strong number one in the world rankings in in all educational categories? No, of course not. But there is no utopian solution like that. Uh, so I don't have a problem with the with naming DeVos the secretary of the Department of Education. You shouldn't have a problem with it either. I, and, and if any of you are just reading the headlines about how this should be somebody we should be scared of, I implore you to read deeper into the analysis of the people that are making those claims. Because oftentimes it's not well supported. It's it's relying on these things that have continually been pushed into our heads that vouchers are going to destroy public education, that, uh, that it's designed to gut public education. That's all they're trying to do is just gut public education. Uh, that anything that threatens the teachers' unions whatsoever is going to harm student performance. No, none of these things are true. And if you read these articles, you can probably come up with all of these sort of logical fallacies that they're that they're trying to push on on readers to be scared of somebody like Betsy DeVos. So I wanted to t- touch on that first. Another important Trump story was his decision to talk to the president of Taiwan, or apparently you're supposed to say the president on Taiwan. Apparently the Washington Post, one of their writers, uh, Ari Fleischer, he had tried to write the president of Taiwan in his story, and they made him change it to say the president on Taiwan because China would, would be unhappy if the Washington Post was using president of Taiwan because then you're recognizing the legitimacy of Taiwan that it should have a that it should have a president, which is ridiculous to me. I'm going to post a link to that Ari Fleischer tweet uh, just to just to show you what what he said, which is fascinating in my mind. But basically, what happened was Donald Trump accepted a call from the Taiwanese president. And for those of you that don't know, I'm sure you've heard about this story, so you know it by now. But Taiwan and China. Basically, China does not recognize Taiwan's right to exist as a separate country, as a, as a sovereign country. It recognizes Taiwan as part of China. And China and the U.S., over a period of, I believe it's close to 40 years, the U.S. has not recognized Taiwan. It's it's called the One China policy. And basically, you have the, uh, you have the, the People's Republic of China, which is mainland China. And then you have the Republic of China, which is what, you know, Taiwan calls itself. And that's, that's Taiwan. So if you, if you always have wondered what Chinese Taipei is in the Olympics, that's, that's one instance where I, that's how I remember looking into, okay, what happened with Taiwan? Why are they calling it Chinese Taipei on the Olympics? That's how I originally, when I was younger, first went and tried and did research on on what happened between China and Taiwan and why we're calling it here Chinese Taipei, despite it always being referred to in informal circles as Taiwan. Uh, but anyways, Trump accepted a call from the president on Taiwan, 
and she was congratulating him on his victory. And from everything that's been reported, it sounds like it was pretty much as simple as that. There really wasn't anything, there wasn't anything diplomatic about this call in terms of talking about policy and how we're going to help each other. It was a congratulatory call. And Trump tweeted out after Trump being on Twitter. A lot of people are really criticizing him for it, but it does allow you to, it it doesn't make my job easier. And people talking about what's happening, you can actually take the words directly from his mouth and it's not, you know, it's not a reporter taking things out of context. This is literally what he has typed out and said. So it allows him to communicate directly with the people, which I think is actually pretty nice. But he said, quote, the president of Taiwan called me today to wish to wish me congratulations on winning the presidency. Thank you. And then he said next, interesting how the U.S. sells Taiwan billions of dollars of military equipment, but I should not accept a congratulatory call. So what he's referring to, and I'm going to link to this story as well um, on the on the website for you to be able to read for yourself. But December 2015. The U.S. sold $1.83 billion in weapons to Taiwan despite Chinese objections. And I'll just read, Despite strong opposition from China, the Obama administration authorized a $1.83 billion weapons sale to Taiwan Wednesday, making the first U.S. arms shipment to the island in four years. Um, And it says they're guided by the Taiwan Relations Act and based on an assessment of Taiwan's defense needs. So I think Trump has a good point here. A very good point here. So we're selling arms to Taiwan, which obviously actually contributes to their ability to be able to defend themselves against China, to separate themselves from China, to establish their own sovereignty. That's exactly what arms do. You can talk about it on the personal level, firearms being the great equalizer. Same thing on the country, the countrywide level. Firearms and other munitions are the great equalizer. So China, of course, heavily objected to the U.S. selling nearly $2 billion in weapons to uh, to Taiwan. But now Trump takes a call, accepts a call from the, from the Taiwanese president, and he's breaking all protocol here. And first of all, I don't want a president that's turning down calls because he's worried about what China or Russia thinks. Yes, I I do not want war with Russia and China. And I've been talking about non-intervention over the long haul. But I don't want want non-intervention by being subservient to other countries. And I really want open diplomacy to all. And that's kind of the founding father's vision. That's the America first vision of uh, of the early 20th century. Names like Charles Lindbergh, uh, John Flynn, and basically what they advocated, just like with how the Founding Fathers advocated, don't get involved in European conflicts, no entangling alliances. What the America First Committee wanted to do was to keep the U.S. out of large-scale conflicts in Europe and to have diplomacy with other countries. Yes, war is still on the table if necessary, if America's interests are directly threatened, if the life and liberty of the American people are directly threatened, then war is justified. So it, it, it's, not a, it's not a completely pacifist movement by any means. But it's the America First Committee, and people have compared Trump's foreign policy, what he's espoused, to 
to the America First Committee. And part of that is having open diplomacy with all other countries, including little guys like Taiwan, you know, including little guys across the spectrum. And as long as this is consistent, as long as it, as long as it's consistent across the board, and Trump doesn't now, with, say, some sort of Russian conflict, if he if he similarly would accept a call from somebody that maybe w- would make Russia a little angry, then I'm perfectly fine with this as long as it's consistently applied across the board. And I think from all indications, it will be. I think he's going to be willing to accept calls at the very least. And it's not talking about negotiating, negotiating treaties or anything, because that's the complete opposite of what I'm saying and of what the America First Committee was saying. Don't entangle us in, in other conflicts, but be willing to talk to everybody. Be willing to trade with everybody. Now, munition sales probably go beyond that, having open and and friendly trade. So I can understand how how that would ruffle some feathers. But free trade of consumer goods and all of that, I talked about on the previous podcast with, with Cuba, how the absolute wrong way to approach the Cuban situation is to bring back sanctions on Cuba and to restrict trade because they're not doing things the way that that we'd like them to do. They're not governing the way that we would like them to and that human rights are being violated. Well, I agree that those things are happening there, that human rights are being violated. And I wish that you could just easily force a government to treat its people better. But if anything, if you look at, if you look at the last 50 years of Cuban-American relations, that hasn't happened. Sanctions have not forced the Cuban government to reform. They have not worked. Whereas, say that Cuba and America had had free trade over this time, and the Cuban people were able to see the benefits of free markets and the benefits of having private property rights well protected. You know, the benefits of a lot of the things that, that Americans can take for granted. I think there would have been much more agitation for reform of the government and there may have been an overthrow of Castro by now. Uh, so I think his approach to Cuba and what he said about Cuba is completely incorrect. And I would hope that he's approaching that situation like he has with Taiwan here. Be willing to accept a call. You're not playing on China's terms. You're willing to talk to everybody. Um, and China is going to have to deal with it. If if they're unstable enough to be willing to react to accepting a phone call, like I said, not negotiating a treaty, a phone call of somebody congratulating you on winning the presidency, then China has far bigger problems. And war must be inevitable. If they're willing to really create some sort of armed conflict over this, then war with China is inevitable. But I don't think that China is that unstable. And I think ultimately they're going to they're going to either come to their senses or all the stories about China being outraged at this are overblown. And I think probably it's the latter. They're going to have to accept under Trump, if if this is how he's going to approach things moving forward, that he's going to be willing to talk to other countries. He's going to be willing to accept calls. And that's what I would like my president to do. And I think over the long haul, that will result in far fewer armed conflicts overseas and, we're, and will, will result in less need for the American military to be 
all over the world. And I don't think there's a need for that at the present time. I want to make myself clear. But I think it will allow the U.S. to withdraw from a lot of these conflicts that it's currently enmeshed in and where it looks like the U.S. can never leave. Uh, But we'll see how that develops. And I'm probably reading too much into what happened here. And like I said, he's been inconsistent on this point, and it hasn't been consistent across the board. He's been very critical of China throughout his campaign, whereas he's been a little bit more sympathetic toward Russia. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see something similar happen with Russia, where Trump is willing to do what Russia would like us to do. Whereas if it was China in Russia's Russia's shoes, then he wouldn't have been willing to to acquiesce however he did to russia uh, so we very well may, we very well may see that and i probably will be pointing back at this episode in the future if that does happen but right now i don't think i think this sets a good precedent if this precedent is followed so the last thing i wanted to talk about this will be pretty quick but it reminded me i i talked about rent control in the previous episode and the dangers of rent control i believe it was in the i believe it was in the last episode It may have been two episodes prior when I was talking about New York City being so expensive to live in and why people were generally moving away from New York State. But there was a story that completely confirmed what I had been saying in that episode about rent control. So I'd seen this on the the New York Daily News. This is the headline. Two Brooklyn landlords plead guilty to forcing out rent-stabilized tenants, raising prices to market rates. So they call these deceitful tactics. They ended up being fined about $250,000 to pay toward the pay toward the victims. And I'm glad that these guys were punished. I don't want this to sound like I'm defending what they did because it is it is deplorable. But it's understandable and it's the incentives created by rent control whereas this would not have happened in a free market in rental rates. So I ended up finding on a, on a local on the local ABC affiliate in New York the details of what they were doing. Uh, one woman said she felt homeless in her very own kitchen. The brothers had walled off her kitchen and bathroom, leaving her with no plumbing for nine months. Uh, a lot of similar types of things like that, taking plumbing away, basically. Uh, the defendants and a worker allegedly visited apartments, and one day the worker cut out portions of the kitchen floor and pulled down two bathroom walls, rendering the rooms unusable. Then they were sealed off from the rest of the apartment. No further work was done. There were multiple different properties here. So I'm just going through kind of a executive summary. Uh, the kitchen and bathroom were demolished in another apartment. Uh, these guys have been facing litigation time and time again uh, tenants didn't have heat because of uh, intended action by these brothers so a lot of things like that basically making the living conditions so bad in these apartments that people would leave because that's the only way to get people out of rent controlled apartments so you have rent control at a, at a particular rate and oftentimes it's far, far below the market rate. And I talked about this, so I'm just going to go over kind of what I talked about in terms of the perverse incentives that rent control creates. So people will stay in the same apartment for 20, 30 years because it's rent controlled at a price, whereas now they'd be paying three or four times that amount 
to go out and get an apartment. So how people look at it is, oh, well, these people benefit. That's great. You know, people can people can live cheaper than they would otherwise. But rent-controlled apartments, and Thomas Sowell does a fantastic job on this. I think probably the the best treatment I've seen him give it is in Basic Economics, which is a fantastic book. I just read it about two or three weeks ago. Uh, but he, he talks about rent control often in his in his writings and the, and the perverse incentives that it creates. But what has happened in rent-controlled buildings over time is maintenance has been ignored because they know that people are going to stay regardless of the maintenance that they do, and they can't recoup maintenance or improvements by slightly raising rental rates. Um, beyond that, they've let... They basically let apartments go into dilapidated states so that people would move out so that they'd be able to demolish these buildings and to be able to build luxury housing in its place because luxury housing isn't subject to rent control laws. And new building hasn't been done for the low end of the spectrum. And that's what happens with rent control. It's happened in cities all across the world. So it's not just a a New York City thing. New York City's famous for having... A lot of people living there under uh, it, in rent-controlled apartments, but these are the incentives that it creates. This is an extreme example, of course, but imagine if these guys tried to do that in a in a free market. First of all, why would they do that? In if in a free market, you know, you'd have you'd have leases. People would sign it. Basically, what they would do is they would tell people at the end of their leases. Yes, you can you can either rent at this increased price to better reflect the market rental rates or you can move out. That's what a lease is. That's how it's supposed to work. Nobody would ever have to resort to these kind of tactics to get people out of the apartment that they own. If they want to use it for a different purpose, if they want to combine apartments, if they want to tear the structure down and, and rebuild it with different types of housing, if they want to make major improvements, now they're going to be appealing to a different demographic of the market, any of these things, all that they would do is allow for these leases to expire. The tenants would leave if they weren't willing to accept basically the the terms of, of a new rental agreement, which would be, I'm assuming, more expensive due to these improvements or due to these changes, and they would move elsewhere. And another... Another perverse result of this, you've got to think, okay, if if a ton of housing is being allocated in rent-controlled housing, now you have a smaller portion of the entire market that actually is subject to market forces. So you have everybody else now competing for a smaller amount of housing, let alone what I had said previously about how new housing is less likely to be built when strong rent-control laws are in place. But now this existing housing, more people are competing for that. And I talked about this in the previous episode in, you know, when when pricing signals are telling people, okay, is it worth it for me to pay this additional money for a three-bedroom apartment when it's now just me and my wife living there? When our kids have moved out and gone on to living in their own places, moved to other cities, do we really need to keep paying $2,000 a month for a three bedroom apartment or should we economize and maybe go down to a one or two bedroom apartment and pay 1250 or 1500 is is that better for us and now that three bedroom apartment can go to somebody that actually does need that it can go to another family that's typically how the allocation of housing works people move into different housing over time 
They will buy a house when their family's young. They'll hold that house for a long time when it's time to retire or once their kids have left, they will downsize to something else. Now that house will go back on the market and another family will buy it that can make the most efficient use of that space or that that needs it the most, that's willing to value the most and, and pay the most money for it. But that does not happen when rent control is in effect. Say that the market rate for for a two bedroom uh, for, for a two bedroom apartment is twelve fifty, but you've been living in this rent controlled three bedroom apartment for seven hundred fifty dollars for twenty five years. You are never leaving that apartment. If you move and you downsize, then you're going to be spending more money for less space. So people don't do that. So they're taking up more housing than they would otherwise. If actually pricing, if actually actual price signals were dictating how much people were spending on housing, how much people were willing to sacrifice for housing, but it distorts all the pricing signals. And so the remaining housing not subject to rent control gets more expensive because now everybody's chasing these other living spaces, whereas more would be available and people would be downsizing otherwise into, into smaller spaces. So now all of this is repetition from what I talked about in the prior episode, but I thought it was perfect that this story came out and it shows the lengths to which people are willing to go to try to make money in this distorted system and in a system distorted by rent control laws. And I hope that a lot of people are reading that and thinking that rent control is the issue here. Yes, these men should be denigrated. Yes, they should be punished. Yes, it was deplorable what they did. I don't want to excuse that whatsoever, but we also need to realize that those things would never have happened if rent control laws were not in effect. And I wouldn't be surprised if if we continue to see stories like this, where people are willing to, to treat their tenants so badly and get them to leave because that's the only way that they can see to make their properties profitable. Because you see properties just being left and boarded up. Tenants are fleeing town essentially to avoid these properties because they can't even make enough money to cover the costs of operating them. They become money losing ventures and it's easier for them to just leave, to just abandon the property than to keep, you know, than to keep having tenants. And then that housing sits there and nobody can use it. And of course, cities with rent control laws also have a strong homeless problem. And there is some correlation there between rent control laws and bigger problems with the homeless, more people living on the streets. So I think that was everything I wanted to talk about today. Kind of a grab bag, like I said. Uh, I am traveling for work this week, so I'm hoping to have another one out by mid next week because I know I have plans pretty much all next weekend but hoping to have one out I don't really know what I'm going to talk about yet I have a couple notes you know a couple sets of notes in the queue kind of waiting if I don't have any news stories I want to talk about or any major topics I want to talk about so I might fall back on one of those if something juicy doesn't come up in the next few days but looking forward to talking to you soon and please subscribe in the iTunes store blueberry uh, podcast addict is my favorite podcast aggregator on Android. Uh, as always, thank you for listening and have a fantastic week.